um, I'm reminded of why a number of years ago we, we made the commitment that every three years we get through all of the genres of Scripture. So that way those who, because we have a somewhat transient community, understand how they see Christ from every part of the Bible. And um, so I pray that your time here has served you well to be able to do that. Um, so this morning we are in continuing our journey through John. Um, you know, uh, Mr. Wood came up to me today and said, we're really covering all of John 3 in one day. And I said, yes, we are. Um, I didn't assign it. Um, it was assigned to me. I think Jason said, let's see how he does this. Um, I love you too. Uh, but imagine it is a crisp autumn afternoon. You know, if it, given the weather we've had, it's not that hard to imagine it. Um, but imagine that the temperature outside requires um, a stocking cap. For Jason, that means it's 15 below zero, but for the rest of us, it's like 50. Um, you might have a vest on. Um, but that's what's going on outside, but inside you're sitting in your favorite chair, and the sun is coming in, and it's keeping you warm, and on the coffee table next to you is your favorite fall drink, maybe coffee, maybe a latte, maybe a chai, double shot of espresso, for some a quad shot of espresso, but it's a fall drink, and in your hands is a well-worn book something that you have read 15, 20, 25 times, the spine reflects it, pages might start falling out. You know the story inside and out, but for some reason reading it again and again serves as a happy place for you. Each time you read it, you catch another nuance of the story and you love that book more and more. Now some are sitting here saying, I can't imagine reading a book 15 times, let alone once. You're more of a movie person. Maybe your happy place is sitting down to watch Lord of the Rings. Of course, the extended version, right? Okay, just checking. For others, you want something more modern. Maybe it's something like Harry Potter. And each time you go through it, you learn more and more. And in Harry Potter, once you learn of the complexity of the backstory of Severus Snape as it's discovered in Deathly Hollows. The next time you watch the movie, you're watching him welcome Harry Potter and you're thinking differently about those interactions. Things you overlooked now stand out. Friends, it is quite possible that this third chapter of John can be the same way for you. John penned this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 316 may be the most familiar verse in all of Scripture globally. And you may be overly familiar with it. As I read and reread this passage, I realized I had become overly familiar with it. But as I spent more and more time, things started coming forward that I had not seen before. And I have become more amazed with God's desire and intent and completed work to be with His people. 
So I cannot stress this enough. God's relentless commitment to be with His people, understanding God's relentless commitment to be with His people as it's revealed in the pages of Scripture, influences the way we live our Christian life. Or at least it should. My prayer is that as we walk through this familiar passage this morning, your eyes would be opened, you would be more amazed by God in the way you walk out your faith, the way you gather with people, the way that you have hope as you move forward. So in this chapter, there's two accounts. There's different characters from different walks of life, but the theme and the content is actually repeated. In these two accounts, there's four key concepts. We're going to lean into those. I've put them on the handout. So that way, if you want to follow along, you can. First one is that God sent His Son. God sent His Son. The second one is that some believe. But sadly, most reject. And those rejectors remain condemned. So those are the four things we're going to see. I'm not going to read this from start to finish, but walk through it with you. Um, Just so you know, this week I am choosing to teach from the NLT. I have not done that for eight years. Number one, because I can. Number two, to change things up, but actually because there's a couple of phrases that actually are a little bit easier understood in the NLT than the ESV. So come with me, let's walk through this together, beginning in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. See, in this first account of Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader comes at night. Nicodemus comes at night to have a discussion with Jesus. He comes at night because he's afraid that others might see him engaging with this individual. And Nico asks Jesus a question in verse 2. What's interesting is that Jesus won't answer the question directly. How many of you have gone to Jesus like Nico asking for concrete answers? Nico wanted concrete answers about who Jesus is and where Jesus came from. He seems to understand where he came from, but he wants Jesus to say it directly. And what you'll see is that Jesus shifts this question to a discussion, not about who he is and where he came from, but more importantly, why he came. The why is most important. Jesus makes it abundantly clear in this discussion with Nico why he came, and that's Jesus came to save sinners. 
And so when asked, where do you come from? Jesus responds with a statement about humanity. Look in verse 3. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. See, Nico approaches this discussion from an earthly perspective. And Jesus provides a heavenly perspective in response. Guys, this is what Jesus does when we come and spend time with Him. It is natural for us to come with an earthly perspective. But Jesus reframes our thinking from that which is earthly to that which is heavenly, and that's a big deal. And what's interesting is that Nico doesn't get it. His mind is stuck considering the earthly implications. Verse 4, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Well, it's a practical question. It's a reasonable one. He's never heard of this thing called born again before. And that question reveals a bit about each of us. We prefer to avoid the more difficult parts of Jesus' response. We come to Jesus with a challenge or a problem we're facing. We desire a concrete answer of how God is going to work things out. Is that right? We come, we pray, I want an answer. In my experience, God rarely answers concretely. Look at how Jesus answers. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. See, verse 5 clarifies verse 3. Notice the difference between the see in verse 3 and the enter in verse 5. Verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nico responds, how can somebody be born again? Are they going to enter their mother's womb? And Jesus responds and says, no one can enter the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about you being flesh, your fleshly birth. No one can enter the kingdom of God. This is a spiritual deal unless they are born of water and the Spirit. So in essence, Jesus is saying, Oh, my friend, why are you still thinking in your earthly terms? You're not going to see heavenly things unless you're born again, and you're only born again if the Spirit is at work in you. See, God desires His people to be with Him forever. He desires His people to enter the kingdom of God. Brings us to verse 7. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Look at verse 7. Jesus addresses Nicodemus personally. He says, you, of all people, shouldn't be surprised. You're the teacher of Israel. You know the Old Testament inside and out. 
But what's interesting is if you think about Jesus' interactions with other religious leaders, normally he condemns them. Normally he calls them out. But see, Jesus knows Nicodemus' heart. And he says, Nicodemus, you of all people should know what I'm talking about. Jesus responds with kindness and gentleness. He's giving us an indication that Nicodemus has been given eyes to see him as Lord. It's because Jesus cares about his people deeply and God's desire to be with his people that Jesus helps us understand and calls us to himself in a similar way personally. He's instructing us as we come to him to maintain a heavenly perspective. He says to Nicodemus again, don't get stuck on the born again piece. Jesus is being practical here. He says, don't miss the point. No one questions whether the wind exists. We can feel its effects. We watch as the trees sway. If you all looked to your left and looked outside, is it windy or not? No. We can tell by what happens to other things, whether the wind is present. We can see the wind coming across a lake. What once looks like glass starts to ripple. And you know that if you're looking at a lake and there's white caps, you're about to get hit with some gust. We don't know where the wind came from, yet we know it's there. See, many around us will question whether God exists, and yet all creation points to a creator. We experience the effects of his presence every day. Every day when you wake up and the sun is still in its place, that's the presence of God. You know its effects. When the wind blows, the things about it don't have a choice whether they're affected. Do they? How many have ever been camping and a thunderstorm comes through? Anybody? Yeah. That canopy that you had set up, where is it? It's somewhere else. Maybe you've had a trampoline in your backyard that ended up on your neighbor's lawn or the street behind your house. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can see its effects. You can feel its effects. But the object the Spirit acts upon doesn't know that the Spirit was going to act upon it. When the Spirit acts, the hearts of the people the Spirit acts upon are affected. We can't control it, we can't predict it, we can't understand it, but it's still God's presence, and it's God's prerogative. I want to illustrate this. I had the privilege of having lunch with some men this week, part of a group called Men of Valor. don't know if you've ever heard of them. They have dedicated their lives ministering the gospel to people who are incarcerated generally for 30, 40, 50 years, if not life. Men who are on death row. Not only do they share the gospel, 
Oftentimes, they'll bring in people of influence to do some type of private gathering, maybe a concert. Last week, they had Vince Gill in at a prison, and then Vince Gill shared his personal testimony. One of the men I was with, his name is George, was a drug kingpin. He never graduated eighth grade. His father was a convicted felon. He found a way to evade the law for, in multiple states for felonies for more than 10 years. And he was finally turned in by someone he knew. On account of his actions and the degree of the crimes he committed, he was sentenced to life in prison with no parole. His crime, coupled with his behavior in prison, required that he spent much of his time there in solitary confinement. One day, someone came, knocked on the door, and asked if he wanted to come to a church service. He wanted fresh air because he hadn't been out in months. And so he said, sure. It turned out that no one else showed up for the church service except the volunteer who was sharing the gospel. After hearing a bit of his story, the volunteer told him that the only way things would change in his life is if he gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. George laughed out loud, told him a bunch of things that I can't use from the stage here. He thanked him for getting him out of the block for a bit and left. Three days later, George found himself crying, realizing that he needed Jesus more than anything else. See, the object of the Spirit's moving had no desire to be moved. George wasn't seeking anything, and yet he was moved, and no one could have predicted it. Amazingly, by God's grace, they let him out after five years. He, to this day, knows no reason why. When he got out, he immediately started his own company because he couldn't get a job anywhere. He went to Walmart. He bought a rope and put up signs all over town to be able to basically tow any vehicle to the junkyard. Pay me a little bit and I'll tow it for you. Today, that company generates more than $30 million a year. George flew the team that was here in his private jet. His son, who also spent time in prison, has also come to know the Lord Jesus as Savior, and now they go back into prison to share the gospel with individuals who are on death row. Friends, that is God's redemption. I sat there having lunch, bawling, because you cannot explain that other than the Lord moved. See, we cannot predict how, where, when the Spirit acts on people. You had no control over your physical birth, and you cannot control your spiritual birth. That's what Jesus is telling you. But Nico didn't get it. Look at how he responds to Jesus in verse 9. Nicodemus asks, how can this be? 
Verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. He's speaking of himself and the disciples. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So here's one of the most respected Jewish teachers who knows the Old Testament better than most and could not understand what the Old Testament had to say about Jesus being Messiah. Who's seated in front of him. Friends, knowledge of the Bible is important. Knowing God, knowing who He is, and believing what He's done for you is more important. Jesus continues in verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. And so Jesus is ending the conversation with Nicodemus here, Israel's teacher, by reminding him of an account that he knew very well. See, the account that Jesus is referring to is found in Numbers in the Old Testament, the fourth book of the Pentateuch, the law. See, during the time when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, there was a time when God sent a plague of poisonous snakes, vipers, to attack the Israelites. But He did it as punishment for their rebellious attitude towards His instructions. So God sent snakes to bite the Israelites and the result is that many are dying. And the only way that someone who's bitten by the snake could be healed was by following and trusting in God's command. And God's command was to look upon a bronze statue of a serpent that Moses was commanded to make. So Moses makes this serpent, puts it on a pole, holds it up, and cries out to them to look. And they had to believe that healing would come by looking. See, in the Old Testament, God sent His ambassador, Moses. Some believed what Moses had to say and looked to the raised statue. Most rejected. What happened to those who rejected? They perished. Friends, we have the same responsibility or at least a similar responsibility to Moses not to make a bronze statue of a serpent but to put Jesus on display in the way we live and the way that we speak. Encourage people to look to Him and to believe. See, the volunteer that I told you about went into the prison and begged George to look. Look to Jesus. To believe upon his name and be saved. And when he woke up crying, he realized he had to believe. And as a result, he was changed. He was healed. 
He was restored. He was forgiven and literally set free. In the passage, that's the end of the conversation with Nicodemus. And John then moves to clarify how this applies now that the Messiah had come. And that brings us to potentially the most well-known verse in all of the Bible. Verse 16. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Friends, God's love is not inactive. It is not self-centered. God's love moves towards people. When John writes that God so loved the world, the so there is not so much about the amount of love that he has, but rather the manner of love that he has that he created. It's not amount, it's manner. This is the pattern of love for all relationships. Love pursues others. See, some people will say that this verse provides a reason to believe that God saves everyone. Thinking the world means everyone. Their focus is on people. Sadly, it's inconsistent with Scripture. Recall Jason's message a couple of months ago on Isaiah 53. I want to put it on the screen for you so you don't have to turn there. So verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah is clear. God's servant, the one whom he sends to his people, make many to be accounted righteous, not all. And just so you think, it's not just the Old Testament that indicates that not all are saved. Both Matthew and Mark indicate that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. See, God sent His Son to pursue people. What's most important here is not the people, it's the testimony to God's relentless pursuit that He sent his son, to pursue people. This is the basis for all relationships. We are to pursue people. We are to sacrifice for others. We are to love others so deeply that we go to them. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, 
but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Remember our four parts. God sent His Son. Some believe, most reject. Those who reject remain condemned. See, those who reject stand condemned already. Whoever believes is not condemned. So the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe in Jesus? You guys still with me? Yeah? Good. So this thought of Creator God, infinite in nature, one who always existed and will always exist, stooping low and sending His Son, sending His Son to save and redeem broken people, should send our minds spinning. It's kind of like the icon on a PC that spins and spins endlessly when it's supposed to just install a simple update. Spinning and spinning and spinning. Why would God send His Son in the first place? Answers to that question and all the questions related to that is not contained in this verse. While a little bit more is revealed in this paragraph, the answers aren't wholly contained in this chapter nor in the book of John. But when you understand the story of Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, verse 21, you begin to get it. Let me try to help you see how amazing this is. When we think of God being holy or holy other, from an earthly perspective, we often think of God being separated from us physically. But more importantly, the distance between us and God is moral, not physical. See, when the seraphim in Isaiah's vision, which is captured in Isaiah 6, verse 3, cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of your glory. They're saying that he is gloriously separated from us and everything. And yet God has freely and graciously chosen to be with humanity. If I could drop the mic, I would. Get this. God's desire to be with His creation draws straight from His grace. It draws straight from the relational nature of the Trinity. Though He is self-sufficient, He needs nothing else to be complete. He chooses to be relationally close with His creation. Scholars use the term imminence. Think about it. God chose to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. That'd be cool. Right? He came down to take a look at a tower in Babel. Hey, let's go see what's going on here. 
he appeared to Jacob at Bethel. He gave his law to Moses at Mount Sinai. All indications of God being present with his people. Theologian James Hamilton suggested that the very fact that we have these words, the Bible, God's words in written form demonstrates God's desire to reveal himself to us and relate personally with us. Consider how the psalmist put it in Psalm 113 verses 4 through 9. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? But here's His imminence. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Friends, what's the only solution to the anxieties and the despair of this world? It's knowing that God himself, who is greater than this world, is the source of healing for broken and fallen humanity. So if that's true, and God himself is the only solution, how do you approach your engagement with the world? Do you seek to condemn or to save? Do you seek to condemn or to save? See, for me, it's easier to be a bit complacent, acting like Jonah, expecting God to allow judgment to fall on others because they get what they deserve, to chastise the world, to condemn the world. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. That's what it says, verse 17. Am I willing to have the same mindset? Are you? Do you desire to save the world, to save those around you, to save those whose lives do not line up with Scripture that are uncomfortable for you to be with? Are you willing to go to others, to step into their mess, to do what can be uncomfortable and share Christ, to lift Him up in hopes that they might be saved? Consider Paul's exhortation to the Roman church found in Romans 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That was George that morning in his cell in solitary confinement, calling on the name of the Lord. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
Ask yourself a question. When's the last time I've shared the good news with someone I believe needed to hear it? Friends, this isn't just about evangelism, though. We each need to hear the gospel preached often. We need to be reminded of the gospel so we continue to look to Him. Otherwise, we will feel condemned. And we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But just because you're sharing the gospel with those that you know love the gospel is not an excuse to not seek to share the good news with those around you who are in desperate need of the gospel. John continues in verse 19. This is the verdict or judgment. Light has come into the world But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Remember those four key concepts. God sent His Son to save. Some believe, most reject, and those who reject remain condemned. See, verse 19 clarifies why judgment occurs. The light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light. Now, I think it's safe to say that most people fear the light because they know what's going to be revealed in the light. Is that true for you? See, it's not comfortable for any of us to have the darkness in our hearts and lives revealed by the light. Being honest with you all, it's not something I like. But I'm grateful for it. It's not pleasant but it's good. You know, when I was talking to George and he was sharing about how he was turned over by someone he knew, a tear started coming down his cheek and he says, I thank God that I was turned in. I don't have a framework for that. That someone has been so restored to God that he is grateful for having his sins exposed and effectively being condemned, earthly speaking. So what can we do about our hesitancy, our reluctance, others' reluctance to come into the light? All we can do is pray. Pray for those around us who are resistant to the gospel and pray for those who believe the gospel. Let me give you an example. Maybe it's something like, Lord, having our sins and our failures exposed by your light is intimidating. It's frightening. Lord, none of us here likes it. 
Lord, I confess I want to be seen highly by others. I imagine there's other in the room that want to be seen highly by others. But I pray that you would give us each a heart that desires to live out the righteousness you've called us to as your children. Lord, make me, make my brothers and sisters here more like you. Expose the evils in our heart that we might confess our sins to you, knowing that we are forgiven. Restore us. Help us to know that fear would no longer serve to hold us in bondage as slaves, for as children of God, we have nothing to fear. Each of you is capable of praying. Each of you. See, as I went through this, I expected the chapter to end there. But it doesn't. And so then, you know, we get done with 21. All of a sudden, it took me a while to find the connective tissue from 22 to the end. So follow along as I try to reveal, uncover, expose the connective tissue for you as well. So Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus is done. John has given us a very clear instruction. And then now verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Oh, and by the way, this was before John was put in prison. And an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. So you have to ask yourself, who are the people that John's describing in the story? Who are the characters involved? See, the first part was Jesus and a Jewish leader. And now we have John the Baptist and John's disciples. And then you have this certain Jew that's kind of stirring up strife. We know that John is fully aware of who Jesus is because of John the Baptist's response to Jesus back in chapter 1 when he saw him coming. Hey, there he is. And in verse 25, we find a person who's intentionally trying to stir up division about ceremonial washing. And so John's disciples come to him, verse 26, and said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. See, John's disciples were concerned that people were following Jesus. It's easy for us today to become jealous that others are more successful in ministry. See, pastors can compare the size of their congregations wrongly equating numbers with health. Nonprofit ministries can adopt a mindset of competing against other ministries that do similar things. Parents can easily think that what others are doing is better than themselves and they have to be a better parent. It's all ministry. And look at how John the Baptist responds. It's instructive for us. Verse 27. To this, John replied, 
A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. John the Baptist's response is beautiful, compelling, and a somewhat convicting display of humble leadership. The expansion of God's kingdom on earth should be the primary driver of our lives, our decisions, and our engagements with others. If we pause and think about our friendships, to what degree do our interactions promote the kingdom of God? Do we talk about a Lord? Do we encourage one another? Do we act together to make God's kingdom visible here on earth? See, I learned this week of a great example of this type of action within the body, where our actions promote the kingdom of God. Anybody here have a vehicle that's broken down ever? Anyone? No one. You got three hands? I want to know what kind of vehicle you had. See, for one of our members, the initial diagnosis of something being broken down was basically catastrophic. Repairs were more likely more than the value of the vehicle. That's never good. And yet, when another member of the body learned of the issue, they chose to sell them one of their own vehicles for half of what it was worth. See, in this case, in love, the member who sold the vehicle pursued the other member with the intent to sacrifice on their behalf, and instead of selling it for what they could have easily traded it for, they sold it for something that was far less and out of love chose to bless a family. They desired to receive less, to become less, so that God's glory would be placed on display, that love would be displayed. And that's absolutely amazing. See, Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come and thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And that example that happened this week is a tangible, practical example of God's kingdom coming on earth. It's God's love made visible. So after this account of John the Baptist where he is not concerned about his own glory but about Jesus' glory, John the Apostle continues, speaking of Jesus, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he's seen and heard but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whomever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on God sent His Son to save, some believe, most reject, 
rejectors remain condemned. That's the essence of John 3. Whoever believes that the Son was sent for a purpose has eternal life. Whoever rejects it remains condemned. Your experience of eternity hinges on your answer to one question. Who is Jesus Christ? All of Scripture describes God's persistent, relentless, mind-blowing pursuit to be with His people. And Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is the ultimate example of His love. Look at verse 36 again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. See, those who believe have eternal life. It doesn't say will have. Present tense, not future. Eternal life begins the moment we are reborn. When God breathes life into dead souls, not only are we given an earthly experience of heaven, but we are simultaneously granted eternal life then with Jesus Christ, God's only Son. So I ask you, who is Jesus Christ for you? Is He Lord? If not, ask Him to be. If He is and your life doesn't reflect it, confess your lukewarmness to the Father. Ask Him to rekindle your first love. If He is in your life only somewhat reflects it, ask for greater grace to love Him more. I want to close with a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon that I came across a couple weeks ago. I've been reading a book entitled Spurgeon and the Poor. It shares the practical ministry side of Spurgeon. See, though Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers, are you aware that 66 different social ministries emerged from his small church in London? It's fascinating. It's the same number as the Bible, but that's beside the fact. Those followers of Jesus in London made Christ real in the midst of an urban environment. They made a tangible impact on the community around them in the name of Jesus, and it's, I, be, I believe, because they understood who Jesus was. They understood that God sent His Son. They believed and therefore experienced eternal life in the present. And they wanted to share that practically with everybody around them. And so, here's Spurgeon considering John chapter 3. Hold on to your hats. This is Spurgeon at his finest. There are many who fancy they are born again who are not. It well becomes us then frequently to examine ourselves, and it is the minister's duty to bring forward those subjects which lead to self-examination and have a tendency to search the heart and try the reins of the children of men. For except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The change is radical. It gives us new natures, makes us love what we hated and hate what we loved, sets us in a new road, makes our habits different, our thoughts different, makes us different in private and different in public. So that being in Christ, is, it is fulfilled. If in any way be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
Then he challenges the congregation. I appeal to yourselves. A sermon is too long for you very often. The singing of God's praises is dull, dry work. You think that going up to God's house is very tedious. What will you do where they praise God day without night? If just a short discourse here is very wearying, what will you think of the eternal talkings of the redeemed through all ages, of the wonders of redeeming love? If the company of the righteous is very irksome to you, what will be their company throughout eternity? The only heaven there is, is the heaven of spiritual men, the heaven of praise, the heaven of delight in God, the heaven of acceptance in the beloved, the heaven of communion with Christ. I came here determined this morning, if I must use rough words to use them, to speak right out against men and for men too. For the things we say against you now are really for your good. We do but warn you, lest you perish. Those who reject remain condemned. Spurgeon exhorted those in attendance on that day in the mid-1800s to consider the way their lives reflect the Savior, to consider the way they pursue and relish time with the Lord. And I exhort you 170 years later to look to Jesus. Embrace the Savior's love. Don't allow your familiarity with this passage or this chapter or this book prevent you from digging in. Be continually amazed in the Lord. Spend time in the Word. Search the Word. Believe the Word. Believe in the Word. Be with people who love the Word. Respond to Him. Submit to Him. And love others in a way that they too are compelled to believe in Him. You have eternal life now. Live like it. Let's pray. Father God, Your words challenged Your people. Your words challenge religious leaders and the common man alike. Thank you for coming. God, thank you for sending your Son. Lord Jesus, thank you for being obedient to the point of death on the cross to fulfill the desire of the Father to have His people with Him for eternity. Thank You for sending the Holy Spirit that would give us new life, breathe new life into us. Thank You for caring so much that we knew about You, that You have preserved Your Word for us. Help us to glorify You. In Jesus' name, amen.